Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, Their Words Seemed Like Nonsense, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Easter Sunday, March 23, 2008. Christ is risen, proclaims the liturgist. He is risen indeed, the congregation responds. That's the Christian story in three words. Christ is risen. In that, by his resurrection, he vanquished sin, death, and all the powers of hell. When Christians celebrate Easter, says Rowan Williams, Archbishop of Canterbury, we are really standing in the middle of a second Big Bang, a tumultuous surge of divine energy as fiery and intense as the very beginning of the universe. Like the first Big Bang, it's a story that's incomprehensible and unbelievable. Paul conceded by the normal canons of human reason it was a story that was scandalous and foolish. We will cheat death, according to this story. In raising Jesus from the dead, the whole creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay. All things and the entire cosmos will be reconciled to God, whether things on earth or things in heaven. This is not a story with an asterisk at the end that hedges the bet or explains caveats. Rather, it's the ultimate grand narrative. After three years of teaching, preaching, and healing, Jesus repeatedly warned his followers that his journey to Jerusalem would end in persecution, death, and then resurrection on the third day. But we read in Luke chapter 18 that his closest disciples did not understand any of this. And when Jesus did rise from the dead, they not only didn't understand him, they didn't even believe in him. It's in the disbelief of the first believers that I base my own Christian belief. Since all the disciples had fled, the women who supported Jesus, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome, Joanna, and others, the women were the first witnesses of the empty tomb. When these women told the eleven disciples that they had seen the risen Lord, we read in Luke 24, 11, that they did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense. When two witnesses later reported their encounter with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, Mark 16, 13 says, they did not believe them either. Even after the Lord appeared in person to the disciples and rebuked them for their doubt, Luke 24, 41 reads, they still did not believe it. Thomas, of course, was obstinate in his doubt, and at the Great Commission, some of the eleven doubted his resurrection, Matthew 28, verse 17. No wonder that we read in Mark 16, 13, and 14 that Jesus rebuked them for their lack of faith in their stubborn refusal to believe. Doubts about the resurrection didn't begin with the 18th century philosophes 
19th century Darwinists or with 20th century postmodernists. Only our modern hubris, what the British historian E.P. Thompson called the enormous condescension of posterity, could believe that we today finally have advanced beyond the crude superstitions of illiterate peasants who way back in 33 AD were so gullible that they didn't know that corpses don't rise from the dead. No, lots of people doubted the resurrection, beginning with the closest followers of Jesus. The doubts of the disciples and the disbelief by many of their contemporaries read more like a no-spin zone than a propaganda ploy. Their telltale presence lends an air of authenticity to the original Easter proclamation. They give it the ring of truth. At first blush, the idea that Jesus had risen from the dead seemed like nonsense. But then something happened. Luke writes that Jesus showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Acts chapter 1 verse 3. The disbelief of these unschooled and ordinary men gave way to a bold conviction. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of the fact. Acts 2.32 When the religious authorities commanded them to stop preaching, Peter and John replied in Acts 10.41, We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Acts 4.20 They claimed to have had eaten with the resurrected Jesus. Acts 10.41 and that many witnesses could attest to his public appearances, 1 Corinthians 15, 5-8. And so, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, Acts 4, 33. A few people believed their testimony, but many people mocked and scoffed. The religious authorities were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead, Acts 4.2. At Athens, some philosophers believed Paul's preaching, but when others heard about the, about the resurrection of the dead, they sneered, Acts 17.32. Porcius Festus, the Roman governor of Judea under Nero, was at a loss about what to do with the prisoner Paul. He says in Acts chapter 25, 19, and 20, They did not charge Paul with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. Peter rejected charges that he followed a so-called cleverly invented story. 2 Peter 1.16. And Paul instructed Corinthians who said that there was no resurrection of, of the dead for anyone. And so we can safely say that there's nothing new about contemporary disbelief in the resurrection. Most people today don't believe in the resurrection. As with the initial belief of the original disciples, such words seem like nonsense. There are, of course, alternate explanations. 
One proposal that was widely circulated after Jesus' death was that the disciples stole the body and created the fiction of Christ's resurrection. Matthew 28, 15. Other argues that the life and teachings of Jesus are immortal in the sense of being sublime or intensely inspirational, much like we describe the literature of Shakespeare or the music of Mozart. Others suggest that the spirit of Jesus lives on us and as a powerful memory and a presence, like the spirit of Gandhi or a favorite uncle who deeply influenced us when he was alive. These alternate explanations have in common the idea that the resurrection accounts are more myth and metaphor than history, more like religious poetry than straightforward narrative, something to be taken figuratively, but not literally. But that's not what those first doubters came to believe, not by a long shot. To them, Jesus was truly and literally raised from the dead, and even if they couldn't fully understand it, describe it, or explain it, just as we can't today, they freely admitted that their gospel was a sham and that they were liars if Jesus was not raised from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15 For the early Christians, encountering Jesus meant to know him and the power of his resurrection. Philippians 3.10 Paul prayed that the believers at Ephesus would know God's incomparably great power toward us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. Or to use Williams' analogy, it's like a second big bang. It's possible that the first believers were either badly deluded and wrong or blatant liars and immoral. As Pascal put it in his Pensees, either deceived or deceivers. But neither of those explanations have the ring of truth to me. The only thing the disciples stood to gain from preaching the resurrection was political persecution, intellectual scorn, in social marginalization. No person should believe a lie about the resurrection, said Paul, and they certainly shouldn't preach a lie, 1 Corinthians 15, 12-19. If Jesus isn't raised, the Christian faith is a cruel hoax in a silly fiction. The women who were the last at the cross were the first to believe. Mother Teresa believed. So did Martin Luther King, Jr. Others, like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, have their own biblical precedents in the condescending scorn of Festus. The Cambridge mathematician Bertrand Russell rejected the message and wrote a famous essay about his unbelief called Why I'm Not a Christian. Francis Collins, on the other hand, head of the Human Genome Project, does believe the apostolic message, and he tells why in his own book, The Language of God. I believe the original disbelievers. 
and stand on the shoulders of other Christians across time and space who have believed, confessed, and taught that Jesus is raised from the dead. And so would Journey with Jesus readers from over 200 countries who have similarly believed, I join the liturgical chorus, Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. And now for further reflection. Meditate on Hebrews chapter 2, 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Consider Paul's words that with his resurrection, Jesus destroyed death, 2 Timothy 1.10, our last enemy, 1 Corinthians 15.26. Contemplate Isaiah's poetry in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8, that God will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. And for further reading, see Rowan Williams' Tokens of Trust, an Introduction to Christian Belief, from the year 2007. For books this week, I review Robert Louis Wilkin, The Spirit of Early Christian Thought, Seeking the Face of God, New Haven, Yale, 2003, 368 pages. In an earlier volume called The Christians as the Romans Saw Them, Robert Louis Wilkin, professor of history of Christianity at the University of Virginia, explored the broad and deep antipathy that developed in the first five centuries toward the Christian movement, at least as that was expressed by the cultured elites. In that book, he presented the views of the pagan critics with both sympathy and understanding, devoting one chapter each to the views of Pliny the Younger, the physician Galen, Celsus, the Neoplatonic philosopher Porphyry, and the Roman Emperor Julian, the so-called apostate. In a short epilogue in that book, Wilkin acknowledged that the Christians responded to their critics. In other words, there was a genuine dialogue, not simply an outpouring of abuse. The credit, he said, goes as much to the Christians as to the pagans. And so, in the present volume under review, Wilkin explores the emergence of what eventually became a distinctly Christian view of God, the world, the self, and human history. Although his task requires him to consider the history of theology as it developed in the early church, in its relationship with thinkers of Judaism, Greece, and Rome, Wilkin warns us not to be overly preoccupied with intellectual ideas. The gospel, after all, does not intend to make us smart, but to transform our hearts 
minds, and our very lives. Early Christianity appealed to history, reason, ritual, experience, and most of all to the scriptures, all with the goal of authentic faith expressing itself in true love. What we seek, says Wilkin, is not barren knowledge, but the very face of God. Psalm 105, verse 4. In his panoramic survey, Wilkin describes how we know God in worship, the sacraments in the scriptures, the struggles to define the Trinity, the nature of Christ and creation, the relationship of faith to reason in the church to broader society, poetry and icons, and then the nature of Christian virtue in the spiritual life. From start to finish, the book is a feast of the early Christian fathers, with special emphasis on Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, Augustine, and Maximus the Confessor. These forebears are, says Wilkins in the last sentence of the book, still our teachers today. Robert Louis Wilkin, the spirit of early Christian thought, seeking the face of God. For film this week, I review Ratatouille from the year 2007. Ratatouille is a French dish of stewed vegetables that plays a delicious role in resolving the plot of this movie, thanks to a remarkable rat called Remy. Remy is a quintessential foodie. He raids shells for saffron, picks fresh mushrooms, and watches his favorite chef on television, Auguste Gusteau, the deceased owner of the famous Parisian restaurant of the same name. But there's a lot of heat in that famous French kitchen after it's taken over by a new, very mean owner who received a bad review. Much to the horror of the new owner, Skinner, did Gusteau really leave the restaurant to his son and dishwasher, Linguini? What will become of the romance between Linguini and the sous chef, Colette? Will Remy the Rat ever reconcile with his family, who can't understand why he's not satisfied to eat out of the garbage, and serve them as their poison checker? Will the humans ever accept a rat in the kitchen? What will that imperious food critic, Anton Ego, think of Remy's dish of ratatouille? And just how will Remy, Colette, and Linguini live happily ever after? Well, grab the family one Friday night, pop some popcorn, and tee up this great animated film to find out. Ratatouille from the year 2007. And for poetry this week, for Easter Sunday, we've posted a poem called Easter Communion by Gerard Manley Hopkins. Hopkins was an English poet educated at Oxford. He lived from 1844 to 
1889. Here's his poem, Easter Communion. Pure fasted faces draw unto this feast. God comes all sweetness to your Lenten lips, you striped in secret with breathtaking whips. Those crooked, rough-scored checkers may be pierced to crosses meant for Jesus's, you whom the East, with draught of thin and pursuant cold so nips. Breathe Easter now, you surged fellowships, you vigil keepers with low, frame, low flames decreased. God shall o'erbrim the measures you have spent with oil of gladness for sackcloth and freeze, and the ever-fretting shirt of punishment, give murray-threaded golden folds of ease. Your scarce-sheathed bones are weary of being bent. Lo, God shall strengthen all the feeble knees. Easter Communion by Gerard Manley Hopkins. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Easter Sunday, March 23rd, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.